Welcome to Flip the Script, your go-to podcast about health disparities. My guest today is Dr. Jamila Michener. She's an associate professor of political science at Cornell University. I'll let her tell us a little bit more about herself. Hi, I am happy to be here today, and I love that folks are listening in, trying to learn about health disparities. I study poverty and racial inequality, but I'm a political scientist, so I think not just about um, the sort of health components of racial disparities, but are you know racial and class disparities. Uh, but I also think about how those disparities map on to differentials in in power and influence in our political system. And I think about how public policies like Medicaid that we often think about in relationship to health outcomes also matter for power and for political uh, positioning. So I really study the kind of health. Uh, politics and policy realm, which mm-hmm. uh, is is super important for health disparities, but isn't always what we have in view when we think about disparities. Right. Uh, you know, it's interesting. We're at a crazy time in our lives as people who live here in the United States. The Affordable Book Care Act is like hanging by a thread, depending on whether or not Joe Biden pulls through in the next, I don't know, 24 to 48 hours. Um, and so my understanding is the current uh, the current administration is suing to um, basically undo or overturn the Affordable Care Act, and you know that's a landmark, I guess, achievement of the previous administration, uh, you know, under President Obama. And oftentimes, you know, when we discuss, you know, what did President Obama do for us, or especially in conversations with, with like my fellow black friends or like young black millennials, some people will say he didn't do anything for the black community. And some people will say, well, he got us the affordable care act. And, you know, it's such a, it's such a dicey conversation because in some ways, yes, like, of course, the increase in healthcare coverage was, it's very meaningful, but in other ways, um, the affordable care act fell short of some of its goals. And I'm curious, you know, I'd love to hear, what your perspective as a political scientist studying the, who has studied the ACA um, is regarding how it might have fallen short. Yeah, you know, I, I have this conversation with folks as well, as far as Obama and what he did for us. And honestly, the Affordable Care Act is the number one thing that comes to mind when that question emerges. And, mm-hmm. and there are other things, you know, but the Affordable Care Act is a big one. Uh, but it's, it's, far, it's far from perfect, right? And, and right. it get us to the goal, which is everyone actually having access first to, to health care, but secondly, beyond that, to health. And access to health requires breaking down a lot of other social structural barriers and dealing with those social determinants. And I think on that front, um, we certainly saw you know, less progress, even under an Obama administration. Uh, but well, even if we think about the Affordable Care Act, I think what the Affordable Care Act set out to do and what the Affordable Care Act did are very different things. And some of that, much of that was outside of Obama's hands, right? Mm-hmm. The biggest part of the Affordable Care Act that got us towards more equity was the Medicaid expansion, right? right. Medicaid expansion, Medicaid is a program that disproportionately affects Black and Latinx populations and expanding that program was going to make it even more so. And so Medicaid expansion was the primary pathway to getting the kind of improvements as far as health disparities out of the Affordable Care Act. And what happened to the the Medicaid expansion? Well, the state sued and the Supreme Court decided in the Sebelius decision that the federal government couldn't coerce the states into expanding Medicaid. And by 
threatening to take away all their Medicaid funding unless they expanded, the court interpreted that as coercion and said, look, this isn't going to work. Mm-hmm. States get to make this choice. And that's where federalism comes in, right? So now it's no longer in the, in the purview of the federal government to make sure that all states expand Medicaid. The states get to pick and choose, and they did pick and choose. And not surprisingly, some of the states that have the most black and brown people decided that they didn't want to expand Medicaid. And even states that decided that they wanted to expand, decided they wanted to expand in ways that were either punitive or limited, right? And they wanted to expand, but they want work requirements. They wanted to expand, but they want all these, you know, policies built in there that actually is going to limit the benefits of expansion. Um, Those things, you know, were sort of outside of Obama's control, right? There were decisions made at the level of the Supreme Court, at the level of states, Um, And so they certainly limited the effectiveness of the Affordable Care Act with respect to health disparities. But I don't know that we can blame that on Obama. Right. Um, Right. I mean, I'm not. Oh, you didn't didn't blame blame it. But I know that's a conversation that often comes up. Yeah. Both among just my, you know, young black colleagues, millennials, um, but generally also when people, you know, criticize the record of. Um, the president, you know, like, oh, the ACA was going to be good, but it was only only but so good because X, Y, Z. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I think we don't always think about federalism um, during, you know, when we're having these conversations. Yeah, but, I agree. So you mentioned um, examples of, uh, you know, additional policies that some states that, um, you know, decided to expand the uh, Medicaid put in place to still, you know, include some some restrictions there. Uh, you mentioned work requirements. I'm curious what what other policies um, uh, certain states have put in place. Oh yeah, these states get creative. It's incredible when you wanna uh, when you wanna stop the quote unquote undeserving for getting from getting access to life saving healthcare. You get real creative. I mean, some of the the more kind of punitive, what I think of as punitive measures are things like um, limiting the kind of retroactive eligibility window, right? Mm -hmm. So you show up to the hospital and you don't have Medicaid, but you need care and they realize that you're eligible for Medicaid. Mm -hmm. You know, there's usually an eligibility window and it may be three months, it, it may be more. And that means that even if you weren't technically signed up for Medicaid during that time, at the point you sign up, that previous window is, is covered, right? So that mm-hmm. your, your health benefits will be covered. States have looked to, to limit those windows so that people don't get that same degree of retroactive eligibility or coverage. Um, states have looked to limit all kinds of things, access to transportation services, which is huge. A lot of Medicaid beneficiaries, you know, you got to be able to get to the doctor to get the care. And mm-hmm. those are considered sometimes additional or optional benefits that states look to limit. Um, States have also imposed costs, right, which people consider minimal, you know, whether it's a small premium, monthly premium, it might be $1, it might be $2, or a small copay, again, it might be 50 cents, it might be $1. And and the logic is you want people to have skin in the game, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And it's this kind of personal responsibility um, logic that um, is really about trying to make sure that people are investing in their own health. The problem is that we know that even these small premiums and copays represent significant barriers to some people. And right. so for people who are perfectly comfortable in terms of their income and their social status, you're like, oh, it's $2. It shouldn't be a problem. 
Um, but for other folks, paying that $2 every time you go to the doctor or every time you go to the hospital or your children go, that does represent a significant barrier. And we know that it causes people to not take up the, ben the program as much or the benefits as much. Um, and the, the, the resources that the state gets from charging people those costs are minimal, right? Uh, so the only point really is to punish people, if, even in a small way, which ends up punishing us all because our society is less healthy. So those are some examples of the manifold ways we've attempted to just, honestly, often it's just about making people's lives harder, hard enough that they decide they're not even going to try to get these benefits. And right. sending people signals about how much they matter and how much the state, how much control the state has over their lives and their well-being, you know? Mm -hmm. And so now among the states that have refused, just flat out refused to expand Medicaid, you know, I think about Georgia, um, <laughs> Georgia, Florida, South Carolina, uh, Alabama, Mississippi, your usual suspects. Uh, <laughs> what is it, right? I mean, I, I mean, I think I know what it is, but like, I want to hear it from a, from a poverty scholar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, some of it is just racism, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and that manifests in a couple different ways. So there are some really interesting studies that have come out in the last several years, for example, looking at um, public opinion on Medicaid expansion. And what we find is a racial divide in public opinion on Medicaid expansion so that white people are significantly less likely to support expansion than Black and Latinx people. Now, levels of support are still relatively high, upwards of 50%, even among white people. So Medicaid expansion is actually popular, even in some of these states where they're not trying to have it happen. Um, that's why we've seen it end up on ballots, right? And right. In places like Idaho and Nebraska, they, they just, Missouri. Missouri. Just, Missouri, right? They just go the ballot initiative route because people actually do want this, even white folks, to be honest. But still, there's a racial divide in public opinion um, with respect to Medicaid, especially in some of those um, holdout states that you mentioned. So not only is there a racial divide, but research on this topic shows that, you know, policymakers are more responsive to the preferences of white Americans than they are the preferences of Black or Latinx folks. I'm shocked. But, uh, it's shocking, right? <laughs> so the, 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 the racial divide in preferences, right, manifests as a racial divide in actual policy outcomes, because the people whose preferences are being, um, are, policymakers are responsive to, are the very people who are less likely to want to support Medicaid. And it's funny, some of these folks, they themselves rely on Medicaid or will at some point in the life course, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so they recognize it's important, but they don't want those people, those undeserving, usually black or brown people getting the benefits. So I do think a lot of what's driving this is racism. You know, there are other concerns around like cost and fiscal sustainability, but we've, we've seen over the last several years, the last 10 years, that Medicaid expansion actually is saving states money. And if it's not saving states money, at the most, it's, it's cost neutral, right? Mm -hmm. Especially when you account for all the benefits, that, the financial benefits that come from state populations that are healthier. Never mind just the, if we care about people, right? If right, the, the number of lives saved. Yeah, then that's a whole other level of benefits. So... Um, and then some of this is politics, right? That, that partisan, um, partisan divides are strong enough, especially among political elites, that you, want to, you just don't want Obamacare to be successful, right? Um, this is part of what's driving President Trump, and he's been super explicit about it. He wants to tank Obama's legacy. And the Affordable Care Act is a, is a centerpiece of Obama's legacy. 
So some mm -hmm. of the politics of this is driven by that anti-Obama anti sentiment um, at the elite level and even at the level of the, the mass population, which also is another you know, variant often of racism. Right, because some people want the patient protection, what is it, Patient Protection Affordable Care Act, but yeah. they don't want Obamacare. <laughs> Isn't it funny? <laughs> yeah. Or you ask people about the component parts of Obamacare and they want every part. Like, yeah, we should have healthcare marketplaces. Yeah, we should have people with uh, pre-existing conditions protected. Yeah, we should expand Medicaid. Then you ask them about Obamacare, they hate it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so they want the resources, they want the material benefits it provides, but they don't want this thing called Obamacare. Obamacare. Yeah. Man. <sighs> Um, you know, that makes me think of two things. Um, Jonathan Metzl wrote this book called Dying of Whiteness, where, you know, he talks to uh, white folks um, and basically, as you know, it turns out a lot of good policies that would otherwise be, you know, for the greater good of just about everyone, including themselves, like, you know, related to uh, healthcare, uh, gun, you know, gun laws, those kinds of things, where people are just um, opposed to them in part because of um, the, you know, the perceived benefit or the perceived greater benefit that they would uh, confer to like black and brown people uh, in this sort of like, I don't know, psychological wages of whiteness. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it makes me think right now uh, in this moment, right? Like we are in the pandemic, right? Like 230,000 people have died so far. And even though disproportionately Black and Latinx people have been dying, right, of COVID at greater, you know, uh, compared to white people. You know, raw number-wise, like, far more white people have died just based on how many people, uh, you know, how many white people are here in the U.S. And so it makes you wonder how come, right, how come is Donald Trump so garnering so much support? Um, yeah. We're right here in the middle of counting votes, and, and he has got, I don't know, 65 million-plus people have voted for him, disproportionately so white people. Um, I, one would have thought that one, COVID, not, not me, but you know, many people would have thought that COVID would have been maybe the nail on the coffin of this man's like political career, um, the way he handled it. <laughs> and especially the fact that he is trying to take away people's health insurance in the middle of a pandemic. And yet the result of the election suggests otherwise, right? It, it, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, there's so many layers to this. I mean, some, some part of this is just kind of what one of the things that we hear often, which is whiteness is a hell of a drug, right? Um, and you're literally high on it. And even though it's killing you, you don't realize that that addiction um, has the consequences that it does, right? And you may not even realize that that is what is going on, what is motivating you. Um, and so some of it is that, just a refusal to recognize um, what, what the, this reality, right? The reality, for example, of COVID-19 or of our, our larger like economic system, our social structure, uh, because you're holding on to some um, you know, advantage that you either believe you have or that you want to maintain. But I also think that there's, you know, some of this is about a lack of information and knowledge Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm astonished, for example, by even just in teaching undergraduate students, by how few of my students know 
about all of the many attempts to undermine the Affordable Care Act and take health care away from people that, that this administration has engaged in, right? Mm-hmm. So, and these are smart kids, right? Mm-hmm. Who, who have all the advantages, never mind all of the other folks out there who aren't listening to NPR all the time or reading the news or, you know, reputable news sources that are providing them with real information. You know, most people don't understand that Texas v. California is a thing, right? And it's a thing that's been spearheaded by the federal government uh, and attempt literally to demolish the Affordable Care Act. And it's headed to the Supreme Court now. We're going to start oral arguments next week. And, and the, the, the kind of fate of the Affordable Care Act hangs in the balance. And it's largely um, because of President Trump. Now, even if the Trump administration is, um, you know, is booted out of office, it doesn't take away the precarity of the Affordable Care Act because there right. are states that have been involved in that process as well that will continue to fight. Um, but the fact that this is what the administration has represented, a concerted effort to eliminate one of the largest um, you know, policies that we've had advancing healthcare uh, in the last you know, several decades, is it's pretty astonishing that you can kind of put your flag in the ground, you, know, you, can, you can stake your claim on that hill, and still people are voting for you. you know? And part of it is just that people don't know. And then part of it is that even when they do know, the framing of what's happening, why it's happening, and how it's happening is so skewed. And some of that is about people's uh, media consumption. If all you're watching is Fox News, then the Affordable Care Act is some plot to like socialize our healthcare system. Which, hello, I'm with it. (laughs) I'm totally with it. People are like, socialized medicine. I'm like, and? Right. Don't threaten <laughs> me with a good time. <laughs> exactly. I'll take one for me and one for everyone else. Um, but though, even a lack of understanding of that kind of thing, right? Like, what do you actually think you mean when you say socialized medicine? And why are you so afraid of it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, the ability to shape narratives in a way that allow people to believe um, that, that things that are actually good for them are not good for them, you know? Uh, and, and it requires a constant othering, right? And it really is, you're dying of whiteness. Um, but, you know, it's not, it's not fun to watch. And it won't yeah, all be solved by getting the Trump administration out of office. It. Right. it runs oh, a lot deeper than that. Oh, Lord. This makes me think, so, you know, in the, in the likely event that the Trump administration, you know, it gets dragged out of the White House. Um, <laughs> Kicking and screaming. Right. Um, now we have Joe Biden um, and Kamala Harris, you know, coming in. Um, when we've been having conversations about, okay, what do we need to do about healthcare? Joe Biden, for one reason or the other, and, and I, you know, it's hard to tell as an onlooker whether it is because there's an element of wanting to protect the legacy of the previous administration that yeah. he was a part of. His whole thing is we need to build on the Affordable Care Act. We need to expand what we did in the previous administration. Whereas, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, like we're, many people are, are saying, listen, we need a Medicare for all. We need a, we don't just need universal health care. We need a single payer. Um, and I have my, th- I mean, I personally am in favor of single payer because from what I've seen as a medical student so far, and also just like seeing the data, healthcare is segregated even within institutions such that those who are on Medicaid or Medicare 
don't always get to see the same doctor as those who have, I don't know, Blue Cross Blue Shield through their employer. And so I personally strongly feel that a universal or a single payer would help sort of like bridge that existing gap where institution, you know, healthcare institutions out of interest or, you know, profit, whatever, are segregating patient care, you know, within their own walls. And I don't know whether that has to do, I mean, it probably has to do with the difference in reimbursement rates, right? And so perhaps if we had a single payer that reimbursed at decent rates, and that wouldn't be as much an issue for healthcare institutions. But I wonder what your take is on, you know, what might be driving the anti-Medicare for all sentiment among certain factions of the Democratic Party and then the general public. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I, yeah, I think Biden is quite torn in this regard. I think that he um, he does want to sort of show a certain fidelity to the Affordable Care Act, which him and Obama worked quite hard to make happen. And it's part of his legacy as well, and not just Obama's. And nobody wants to spit on their legacy and call it inadequate, right? At the same time, there are these kind of more left progressive parts of the party that are calling for more and that are following on the heels of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, who sort of set up the context for expecting and demanding more. Uh, And so Biden is really having to make decisions about which factions of the party he's going to be most responsive to. But I think to the extent that more moderate Democrats and members of the public in general um, have issues with a single payer system, Uh, Those issues are multifaceted. One is that there's a deep distrust of the American government among the American people, and this is across political parties, Mm -hmm. especially among Republicans and moderate Democrats, but more broadly than that. Um, People just don't trust the government to execute, to be the single payer, right? right? Um, And, you know, I think that especially with regard to healthcare, there's an extent to which that distrust is misplaced because I don't necessarily trust the American government either for lots of different reasons. And, and I think most black people have- Hello, COVID. <laughs> no, most, most black people have a, a long list of reasons not to trust the government. And, and I'm among the, that number. Um, but when it comes to healthcare programs like, and just kind of large universal social welfare programs like social security, like Medicare, if we think about the VA, you know, those programs don't run perfectly but they certainly save lives and help a lot of people. And they speak to the federal government's ability when, the, when they put their mind to it and their resources to it to serve many people effectively, right? Through a, a kind mm-hmm. of healthcare and other social welfare programs. So do I trust the government and want to put all my eggs in the government's basket as a general rule? No, but when it comes to healthcare, it's, it, there's plenty of reasons to think that that's our, our best option. Um, But another reason besides a lack of trust in government is really a a kind of commitment to and a belief in we don't trust the government. What do we trust? The market. Right. And Mm -hmm. and single payer also undermines that it undermines the logic, the market logic that you get. um, You get the best results. You get the most efficiency. You get the incentive, the incentives for the best kinds of services if you have this commodity mitigated through the market. Right. The problem is that healthcare has never been a commodity that could be, it's not a commodity and should not be. Right. People can't quite place a price on it. Exactly. With a car, right? And the market has never dealt with it well. 
at least not for the folks who don't have a whole bunch, essentially unlimited resources. Mm -hmm. um, and so the market has proven itself inadequate when it comes to distributing healthcare. But the, the American people don't necessarily know that. And so the combination of this abiding faith in the market and a lack of faith in the government means that single payer, which undermines the market and amplifies the role of the government, it really cuts against the grain for many people, even people who understand themselves to be quote unquote liberal or Democrats or what have you. Mm -hmm. So basically it's capitalism um, that is mm -hmm. uh, one of the main engines here in this resistance. Yeah. Um, and then let's just say racial capitalism too, because once you have single payer and you have the government providing this resource to everyone, guess who's going to end up getting getting the, the goods for free? All the undeserving black and brown people, right? Mm -hmm. So you're undermining the market and you're doing it in a way that's going to redistribute resources to the people who you don't want those resources redistributed to. Racial capitalism says, big red flag, no. I see. Huh. Whew. This is this is a tough. I mean, it's a it's a tough uphill battle um, that the left is going to have to fight. And yeah. uh, now I'm curious how federalism comes into play here, right? Uh, you know, if we were to imagine a world where um, we have Medicare for all, like literally, right? How does federalism work in favor or against that? Um, you know, in terms of like people's trust in the in the federal government. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I think it depends on how Medicare for all is structured, right? Mm -hmm. um, there are ways that you could have Medicare for all at, as far as, um, you know, you could have a single payer federally based funding structure, but you could have a program that's administered and likely you would need to have a program that's administered on the state level, right? Mm -hmm. So states could have still have a lot of uh, quite a significant role to play in terms of administration. Um, that could be a good or a bad thing. Uh, many states are quite good at administering programs. And if you look at uh, something like Social Security, where it's federally funded, but you know, there's some administrative responsibility on the state level, those kinds of programs can work quite well, even in states that we consider to be or that are normally like pretty miserly and do a bad job. Once they're not on the ones that are on the hook financially, like, you know, that can change a lot. Uh, but I think federalism ma still makes things quite complicated in this realm. I mean, <clears throat> the, the, one, of the, one of the appeals of single payer is that the kind of fragmented system that we have right now will be unified in a way that means that irrespective of where you live, you can have access to healthcare, right? Mm -hmm. And our fragmented system now means that what kinds of healthcare you have access to are contingent on what side of a state border you live on. And there's no reason why that comports with any sense of like, like morality or ethical uh, commitment to human dignity. It shouldn't matter if I live in New York or New Jersey or Pennsylvania or Nebraska. Um, if, if I have a kind of inherent dignity as a person, then I should have access to healthcare on account of that. And it shouldn't fluctuate simply on account of what state I live in, which is under a program like Medicaid, exactly what the case is right now. Mm -hmm. So the goal would be for single payer to bring us beyond that, right? Uh, but how we get there, how we get from the fragmented system we have to a more unified system um, may actually depend on federalism. It may depend on what states are doing and on states that are sort of at, at the forefront, the kind of avant-garde states like New York and California taking big steps, right? Mm -hmm. And implementing programs that are akin to what a universal payer would look like, right? 
so that we can see it, see how it works, right? So states might, in this sense, may be, be able to play a little bit of a classic role as what we sometimes imagine them um, as the, the laboratories of democracy, right? Mm -hmm. But I, I'm, I don't have any kind of Pollyanna-ish view of that being what actually happens, right? Right. Um, but I think, I guess my main point is to say that there are possibilities and perils with federalism. Mm -hmm. um, and it's important to keep that complexity in mind. Federalism isn't a clear good or bad thing, right? But what it does is it sets off a, a, a series of kind of political, um, it, it creates a set of political conditions that, that structure our politics and, and, and we have to contend with them if we want to ever get to something like a universal single payer system. Mm -hmm. You know, and thinking about federalism and, um, you know, a, a program that is funded by the state, you know, the federal government, uh, one might say, right? So I think about New York State, where, for instance, uh, actually, I'm not sure whether this is a New York City policy or a New York State policy, but undocumented immigrants in New York uh, I know at least in New York City are able to receive, um, you know, like state funded health insurance uh, to an yeah. extent. Um, for instance, I know like, um, you know, postpartum coverage for undocumented immigrants uh, in, in New York City. I think it lasts like three to six months. I can't remember the exact number, but in, in you know, in some states, that's like not a thing. Right. Um, and yeah. I. I I'm wondering how much, for instance, attitudes towards immigrants, especially those who are undocumented, might shape people's perception or um, uh, or even leanings in favor or against a federally funded healthcare system. Uh, you know, health health insurance system. Does that mean would people be more in favor of it if it meant that because it's federally funded and undocumented um, immigrants don't get to have access to it? Like, you know, what is it? Yeah, I mean, I think that xenophobic attitudes towards immigrants would be a huge part of kind of working out the details of any kind of single payer or universal system. And my sense, um, you know, however, uh, you know, pessimistic is that that would be a huge hurdle, right? That there are plenty of, of people in the U.S. that just don't want to give free stuff to immigrants, mm -hmm. uh, to, to kind of others that they perceive as um, being takers, right? Um, however erroneous, and it is erroneous. Uh, so I think that more than likely, you know, I don't think we're anywhere near the, in terms of the political possibilities, I don't think the political conditions are there in the contemporary moment for a single payer system, mm -hmm. right? Um, we may get some in between option, like a public option, you know, maybe, and even that would be hard. Maybe that will undermine the market and then we'll eventually get where we I need know, to be. I know, right? <laughs> but even getting to a public option is going to be hard, right? And I mean, we got to see how things shake out with the Senate, but mm -hmm. um, it's, it, e even that would be an uphill climb. But irrespective of, you know, what the kind of next step on the ladder is, at every step along the way, this question of giving access to immigrants is going to be a huge one. It's going to be controversial. And I think it will often not break in the favor of actually providing coverage, at least based on resources that come from federal coffers to immigrants. In that way, um, states will continue to be important because we will need states like New York and California 
to continue providing these resources to, to undocumented folks, because the federal government is likely not going to be um, able to do that given the political constraints that exist right now. What, look, would, would most Democrats be okay with that? Yeah, but if you wanna get something like anything akin to a, a move towards a more universal system through the House and the Senate, it's gonna come with a bunch of compromising and the first folks that are going to lose when the compromises start to be made are going to be immigrants. Hmm. Well, that's sad. <laughs> I would love to be wrong. <laughs> you know, sometimes I'm like, I'm so pessimistic and people are like, oh, well, what about, you know, a little optimism or a little faith? And I'm like, look, I'm happy to be wrong with my pessimism. But I think that history, both, you know, in the kind of far past and in the recent contemporary, events give us every reason to believe that immigrants are going to be excluded. I don't even know what to respond. Like, I mean, it makes sense just given the, the landscape of politics and, you know, general like attitudes in this country, that it's nonetheless it's tragic. Profoundly sad. Yeah, my yeah. parents are immigrants. My grandparents, my cousins, my uncles, my aunts, it's, um, they're people, right? They need help. Mm -hmm care and have a right to health just like anyone else does they come here to build a better lives for them life for themselves and along the way they build a better life for everyone right right um, yeah and there's this odd i was gonna just odd perception that that uh immigrants or especially undocumented immigrants don't pay taxes but they do through oh consumer consumership whatever yeah immigrants people living in poverty low-income people they actually pay a, a higher share of their income through taxes um, than, than people who are much, much more wealthy than them, if we think about it in terms of proportionality, especially because the most regressive taxes are sales taxes, right? And so that's certainly eating away at folks' income. And then immigrants pay taxes through and, and, and um, all sorts of other, uh, you know, they pay into, for example, Social Security, even though they're not getting anything out of it. Similarly mm. with Medicaid. I mean, Immigrants are, in many ways, by far putting in much more than they're taking out, right? And those are the ways that we can account, that we can count, that we can, that we can tag some kind of quantitative metric onto. There are all sorts of ways that immigrants are adding to the life of this country that we can't so easily count, right? Um, but again, you know, I, I, there, a lot of immigrants, people are thinking about immigrants and who are they thinking about? Mexicans, they're thinking about, you know, black and brown people and and so the kind of combination of, of kind of nativism, xenophobic nativism and racism is a really potent one in this country. And it has been for a long time, especially since the 1960s, when the kind of the, the hue of the immigrant population changed significantly. Right. You know? right. um, I have one final question for you. If you had a wish list of policies that you would see implemented, you know, Therefore, like healthcare is boring because we just talked about this for the last uh, <laughs> for the last uh, thirty minutes. But if you had a wish list of things that you would want to see this new democratic administration um, try to get through to yeah. address poverty, uh, what would that include? Oh yes, you know, obviously there's healthcare stuff, but I would say uh, the top of my list would be really um, housing, right? Mm -hmm. We're in the, the middle, I don't even know if we're in the middle or what, where we are, but we're, we're in the midst of a serious eviction crisis right now. Right. Um, and, and part of that was, amp, uh, was exasperated by, or exacerbated by COVID-19, but it was the case even before the pandemic. It's now just worse. 
Um, we're on track for it to only get worse and worse. Uh, and so that's eviction. And even outside of eviction, there's a real, there, there's a serious affordability issue in this country. So mm -hmm. I think dealing with the matter of housing and trying to create policy solutions that provide access to affordable housing um, for, for working people and for people who are living in poverty, who are not able to find work is really, really important. I think connected to housing, of course, um, you know, is just the issue of labor and uh, providing people with, with living wages um, and making that the norm throughout the country. Uh, the kind of the combination of what people are able to earn and what they're earning um, through work and, you know, being able to have access to affordable housing, like that's, that's a huge one-two punch. I think we see, we will see significant changes, profound changes um, in levels of poverty and inequality if we provide people with living wages mm -hmm. um, and we build sort of uh, the infrastructure for people to have um, meaningful, more meaningful work that provides living wages. And then if those wages actually allow them to live well as far as housing, right? So I think like thinking about work and thinking about housing, those are the two areas in addition to healthcare that I'd want us to really dig into and start to think in some ways that were a bit more radical. Um, and this gets us back to some of the things that came up with healthcare, which is choosing people over profits, over markets, right? And, and when it comes to, you know, labor and when it comes to, um, to healthcare and when it comes to housing, those are three areas that really tap into some deeper issues that have to do with um, our, our political economy, right? Um, the politics of upholding market institutions often prevents us from creating policies that allow people to be treated with dignity and to live humanely. Um, and so we have to kind of reprioritize and readjust our approach um, to, to, to making policy in the context of this market economy if we really want people to be able to experience economic and racial justice. Absolutely, it's, um, it's crazy right now, this, you know, people are suffering, people are losing their homes, people are getting evicted, but the, the stock market is soaring. It's like there's yep. a total disconnect between the market and what people are actually living. And, you know, and the folks who are benefiting are the folks that already have a lot, right? I struggle with this myself. My, um, my mortgage company called me earlier this week and they were like, look, the stock market is popping. Like you could get a lower rate. You should refinance and, and you can, you know, and it's like, wow, like right. folks that already are in a comfortable economic position get to, you know, I kept thinking to myself, if I refinance right now, am I somehow benefiting from this kind of disaster capitalism structure that we have right now? Because I get to benefit from the market being where it's at while so many other people are suffering. I get to have, you know, the term on my mortgage shortened and my monthly payment lowered when I'm fine without it. When there are people who desperately need help who can't get it right mm -hmm. and it's it, for many of us it's it's that personal that we have to really make it personal for me it's not just do i refinance it's oh my gosh what kind of system means that this that what's happening right now benefits me right mm -hmm. um and it's wrong and it, i mean it's not like you know if you're out there and you're an individual and you decide to refinance i'm not telling you not to do it or to feel guilty but i'm telling you to think about who's losing when you gain Right. Mm -hmm. And how Absolutely. we can, how we can re change the system so that it doesn't have to work that way. And I don't mind if my mortgage is a little higher or if I if I have less money in my bank account or what have you. 
if it means that folks aren't going to be getting evicted or going hungry or not having some place to live or being underpaid, right? Mm -hmm. And so that, that means a redistribution of resources, though, away from those who have more to those who have less. And many Absolutely. folks are just not willing to abide that. So it has to be demanded through power, through politics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Dr. Michener, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. I really appreciate you sharing your insights. Um, and I look forward to continuing the discussion. Thanks for having me, Max. This has been a great conversation. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And stay tuned for the next episode of Flip the Script. <laughs>